Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 30. So in honor of not really a milestone, but I'm going to make it one anyways, we're actually going to cover a listener-recommended case. So this is a shout-out to Brent, who has been a huge supporter of the podcast, and we really appreciate that. And he actually suggested this case, and that is Eliza Fenning. In a wealthy London home, Eliza Fenning served as a housekeeper for Mr. Turner, a legal stationer. She was executed for allegedly attempting to poison him and his entire family, by preparing arsenic-laced dumplings for the dinner table. But due to the general belief that Fenning may have been innocent, her trial and her subsequent execution were sensational. But let's start back at the very beginning. British-born Elizabeth Fenning was born to peasants in 1792. Eliza was compelled to start domestic labor around the age of 14, as her parents would have struggled to put food on the table and make ends meet. She was hired as a housekeeper by a middle-class household towards the end of January 1815, working for Olibar Turner of 68 Chancery Lane in London. Eliza lived and worked along two other apprentices and one other maid, Sarah Peer. At first, Eliza appeared to be content with her employers and co-workers, but then she had a run-in with the lady of the house, Charlotte Turner, who threatened her with punishment and losing her employment for dressing improperly when she went into another apprentice's room to get a candle. What that really means is that Charlotte caught Eliza in her nightgown, and at the time, that would have been scandalous. Only seven weeks into Eliza's employment, and after this incident had already occurred, a horrible event would happen that would ultimately lead to Eliza's death. It's said that Eliza loved to cook, So one evening, she made dumplings and presented them with potatoes and sirloin steaks to impress the Turners. She was also instructed by her mistress Charlotte that evening to make steak pies for the apprentices. The story goes that Eliza set the dumplings by the fire to rise and then went to make the pies because she simply had so much to prepare that evening. When she got back, she saw that the dumplings hadn't risen, but she was determined to fix them. However, despite her attempts, they ended up being served small and black. Despite this fact, everyone ate them, including Eliza. But everyone who had eaten the dumplings felt tremendous discomfort shortly after dinner. They were examined by a doctor who was called to the home, who determined the dumplings must have contained arsenic poison. The cook, Eliza, was immediately held responsible. Despite the fact that Eliza is being held responsible, I do want to point out that she herself also fell ill because she had eaten the dumplings too. But Eliza requested that Sarah Peer, a fellow servant who hadn't actually eaten any of the dumplings, go and get her father and bring him back to the house. Now, when Sarah went and saw Eliza's father, she did not make it clear that it was urgent or mention the illness in the house. So Mr. Fenning forgets about the message until he gets home from work. He eventually shows up and knocks on the Turner's Chancery Lane door somewhere between 9 and 10 that evening. But for some reason, Sarah decides to lie to him, and she claims Eliza's actually out of the house on an errand because that's what her mistress had requested. 
So Mr. Fenning will leave the house without realizing that his daughter was one of the five poisoned occupants or the one being held responsible. Everyone in the family does recover. Anything they had consumed had just not been enough to kill them. According to Sarah Merton in her article, Eliza Fenning, Innocent but Proven Guilty, Orlebar Turner appears to have suspected the dumplings right away. He shows Mr. Marshall, uh, the doctor who was in attendance, the basin that the dumplings had been prepared in, but he only does this after he's fully recovered from his illness. Marshall pours in water, mixes it, strains it, and then looks at the sediment. A knife was tarnished by the half teaspoon of white substance he discovers in the basin. He'll later testify in court saying, quote, I decidedly found it to be arsenic. But it's worth noting that he does not find any indication of arsenic in the leftover yeast or the flour. Eliza will be brought before the magistrate while still physically weakened from the poison's effects, and she's then committed to Clerkenwell Prison. On Tuesday, April 11th, 1815, she stands trial before Sir John Sylvester, the Recorder of London, on four counts of giving poison with the intent to kill. After finding Eliza one night in the chamber of two apprentices partially dressed and threatening to fire her, Mrs. Charlotte Turner says in court that she believed Eliza had been seeking revenge on the family. Charlotte will testify before the court that Eliza would continue to treat her with disdain after this incident. According to CapitalPunishmentUK.org, Charlotte also says that during the presentation of the dumplings, Eliza was by herself in the kitchen. The family sat down to eat at three o'clock and the dumplings were served to the table. Sarah Peer said to Charlotte that they were, quote, black and heavy instead of white and light. After consuming less than a quarter of the dumpling, she told the court, quote, she felt an extreme burning pain in her stomach, which increased every minute. Charlotte had to leave the table and go upstairs because it got so bad. Similar accounts were related by other family members in their testimony. According to additional testimony given in court, the Turner stored a packet of arsenic in the office in an unlocked drawer in order to control mice. The judge found that Eliza could read and write, and as a result, would have been able to understand what was inside the packet. The same drawer also contained the scrap paper that was often used to start fires. According to Sarah Peer, Eliza would frequently retrieve paper from this drawer for that use. My source material was conflicted on whether Eliza actually had a defense lawyer or not. Some said yes, but that he was completely incompetent while others stated that at this point, there was no such thing as defense counsel, so she had no representation. Eliza did end up taking the stand in her own defense. According to the transcript on the Old Bailey Proceedings Online, she said, quote, Prisoner's defense. My Lord, I am truly innocent of all the charge, as God is my witness. I am innocent, indeed I am. I liked my place. I was very comfortable. As to my master saying I did not assist him, I was too ill. I had no concern with the drawer at all. When I wanted a piece of paper, I always asked for it. Since there was actually no reliable method of detecting arsenic before 1836, the forensic evidence uh, presented was scant at best. 
This, however, didn't seem to really matter because the jury reached a guilty verdict following only a brief period of deliberation. The judgment and sentencing were simply listed as guilty and death, age 20, in the trial transcript. At this time, Britain had a fairly robust newspaper industry by 1815, so we're able to observe the rise of the idea that newspapers should communicate opinions as well as events. While the conservative papers were more critical of Eliza, the liberal media seemed to support her. It appears that while Eliza was imprisoned, she herself would have had access to newspapers. The Examiner newspaper published a letter Eliza sent them, thanking them for their support on July 23rd. So the newspaper must have made it clear that they did not believe that she was guilty. With the launch of the Traveler newspaper in 1815, we'll see William Home launch a direct effort to save Eliza. More on that a little bit later. The judgment and death sentence caused a great deal of public unease, and numerous clemency requests were turned down by the Prince Regent, Viscount Sidmouth, the Home Secretary, and the Earl of Eldon, the Lord Chancellor. Despite people's pleas, the execution was scheduled for July 26th. A well-known Quaker named Basil Montague discovered proof that Robert Turner had previously experienced mental instability, acting, quote, wild and deranged, and had already threatened to kill both his wife and himself. Now, Sylvester, who received this testimony, rejected it, calling it wholly useless. And Robert Turner was likely the son of Orlebar Turner, just to, just to make that clear. In addition, an anonymous chemist made the decision to try and reproduce certain aspects of the crime. He used arsenic to make dumplings, but found that it had no impact on whether the dumplings rose or not. And when his cook wasn't looking, he secretly tainted the dumplings while she was away, and no one noticed a difference in their consistency. He even decided to visit the Turners at home in an attempt to win over their support which represented Eliza's best chance of getting a reprieve. Now he failed, because just as he was winning over Orlebar Turner, the recorder John Sylvester arrived and persuaded him, along with Robert Turner, not to sign the petition in favor of Eliza. On execution day, the enormous portable gallows were prepared at the debtor's door on Wednesday morning after being pulled out of Newgate by a team of horses. At this time, it was common practice to hang prisoners in groups for separate offenses. However, this day would be the only triple hanging carried out in 1815, the year that saw 12 executions at Newgate. Some sources say Eliza's execution date was also supposed to be the day of her wedding. She had been engaged at the time of her sentence. Eliza wore what some thought was bridal attire, a white muslin gown, a matching work cap, and lace boots. And when the reverend in attendance asked her to address the crowd, she proclaimed her innocence before God. According to CapitalPunishmentUK.org, at around 8.40 a.m., the preparations were complete, and Langley, the executioner, withdrew the pin, releasing the trap, and launching the prisoners into eternity. It's reported that Eliza died easily, quote, almost without writhing. Now, according to Sarah Merton, William Hone, a writer and journalist who championed the freedom of press and stood up for the underprivileged, was one among the 50,000 people in attendance at Eliza's execution. He said, quote, 
I got into an immense crowd that carried me along with them against my will. At length, I found myself under the gallows where Eliza Fenning was to be hanged. I had the greatest horror of witnessing an execution, and of this particular execution, a young girl of whose guilt I had grave doubts. But I could not help myself. I was closely wedged in. She was brought out. I saw nothing, but I heard all. I heard her protesting her innocence. I heard the prayer. I could hear no more. I stopped my ears and knew nothing else till I found myself in the dispersing crowd and far away from that dreadful spot. Eliza's body was only able to be buried after her distraught father paid 14 shillings and six pence to prevent it from being given to anatomists for dissection. Remember, we actually covered this in a previous episode. The only way that doctors or anatomists were able to get cadavers for anatomy lessons at universities were from executed prisoners. That is until the Anatomy Act that didn't come until many years later. That also helped prevent the practice of grave robbing, which if you remember our episode on Burke and Hare was pretty prevalent at the time. Prior to burial, the body in its coffin was placed on display for four days, drawing a sizable crowd of mourners. According to Marshall for his article in Critical Survey, thousands of people watched the funeral from rooftops and the streets. Years later, referring to Eliza's execution, Charles Dickens would state, The people of London wept for her, and the great generous heart of London is seldom wrong in such a case. Now, William Hone and John Watkins would begin a process in which Eliza was converted for posterity into an emblem of mistreated women by publishing careful research findings revealing the injustices of the court procedure. The prosecution's case was disproved in William's 240-page book, The Important Results of an Elaborate Investigation into the Mysterious Case of Eliza Fenning which is widely regarded as a landmark in investigative journalism. In it, he asserts that Eliza was killed to serve as a warning to other servants about what would happen if they injured their masters or mistresses. Now, knowing whether Eliza was guilty or not is challenging, especially given that the trial judge himself stated that the evidence against her was just circumstantial. Additionally, it was primarily given by individuals who were hostile towards her in some way or another. But who attempted to murder the Turner family, and why, if Eliza was innocent? We may never find out. The answer might simply be lost to history. But John Gordon Smith's 1829 book, Hints for the Examination of Medical Witnesses, does contain an intriguing note. On page 136, there's a quotation that reads, In the morning journal of Monday, under the signature of John Grant, says, I am assured that a son of Orlebar Turner of Chancery Lane had recently died miserable in Ipswich Workhouse, confessing that he put arsenic into some yeast dumplings to poison his family, and for which crime Eliza Fenning was hanged innocently. We will never know if this quotation was actually true or not. If in fact a son of Mr. Turner did poison his family and Eliza was innocent after all. According to CapitalPunishmentUK.org, Eliza was one of six women nationwide who were hanged in 1815, 
proving that it wasn't unusual for a woman to be put to death. Of these six, four were for murder and one for arson. In general, it didn't seem like the public had much sympathy for women who received death sentences. Although Eliza's general attractiveness and youth might have inspired some, many of the other women who were hanged at the same time were also young. So the public sympathy wasn't just because Eliza was a woman. As we previously went over, newspapers were also much more accessible by 1815, and adult literacy rates were significantly greater. So it simply allowed for a larger audience to read about Eliza's case. At this time, there also would have been sizable class disparity. The lower classes thought a member of their class was being unfairly victimized, but the upper classes were mostly in favor of the execution of a servant who had, it seemed, attempted to poison members of their class and was therefore considered a threat. There appears to have been a political component as well. The Tories were more in favor of the execution than the liberals and reformists in part because in this case, no one had actually died. And since only people who held property could vote in 1815, both women and the poor would have been shut out of the political system before the Reform Act of 1918 removed the requirement that men own property and granted some voting rights to women. It would be over 103 years. Lawyers and scientists also remained troubled and intrigued by Eliza's case. Did knives truly become blackened by arsenic? Was the Dr. Marshall's evidence reliable and convincing? How much of the guilty conviction and the failure of the appeals were caused by collusion and collaboration between the judge, the prosecutor, and the witnesses? These questions are still on people's minds today. And Eliza Fenning will be a controversial figure in history. Was she truly a young, innocent woman hung for a crime she did not commit? Or was she a poisoner who attempted to murder the entire household? I'll let you decide. And that brings us to the end of the life and potential crime of Eliza Fenning. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion like today's suggestion, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.